earlier this week, <clears throat> I was up real early in the morning with my daughter as she was feeding a newborn. And by the way, I, uh, Cheryl and I are going through this refresher course on, on parenting, <laughs> parenting young ones. And uh, I've just got a, a fresh appreciation of moms. I don't think moms are appreciated enough. And I cannot say that enough. So <clears throat> Heather was feeding uh, little Damien. You know, when you have two grandchildren, one after the other, and they've got sort of unusual names, you know, Damien. They could have, could have called him David and John or something like that, but Damien and Alden. It's like, which am I talking about now? Damien. <clears throat> she was feeding Damien, and I was up there making sure she had enough sustenance to keep going. And we decided to watch a, a, a movie, and we found a short mo movie on the actual... The story behind the iconic picture of the Earth rising above the, 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 the lunar surface, and that's, that's the image over there. And that's taken by Apollo, Apollo 8 in 1968. And Aldous was actually the, the astronaut who took this picture. They had spent hours, the, that particular, it was the, that particular mission they had no, no lunar module that only went around the, 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 uh, the, the moon. And part of their mission was to just photograph the lunar surface. And they had spent hours and hours and hours just taking pictures of, and, and multiple pictures of, of this, of the lunar surface. And it was absolutely incredibly boring, they said, and which was a which was the first thing that struck me, and I thought, and you think of the vastness of the, of the universe, is there was nothing down there but dust. And I thought to myself, and they were talking about various things, and I thought to myself, what is, what, what is the meaning of life? And it, to me, it almost appears that the meaning of life is life itself simply because we live, that we can associate with each other, that we can be together. Life itself is really, appears to be the meaning of life, and it can be interpreted that way. But anyway, that's not what I was... They were but then they looked up after hours of looking at the lunar surface, and they saw this, this Earth rising above the horizon of the moon. And this, this image was not planned... He simply had the camera in his hand. He put the camera on three different f-stops to get, make sure that he had a good, fo I mean, a good uh, focus of each one of them, not focused uh, setting. And this is the one that was chosen, and it became the most iconic picture that they took. And part of that, that video, they said two things that was very striking for me, especially preparing for today's teaching. The first thing they said was, Borman was the commander of that, and he said, if they had, if the, if the moon, if they'd gone out four times further out beyond the moon, in other words, um, 
It took them three days, almost three days, to get to the moon, 68 hours to be precise. If they traveled 12 days out there, the, the Earth would have been so small, it would have looked like all the other objects in space. And he said, one of the things they began to realize, how insignificant we are, this Earth, in the universe. Absolutely insignificant. And this is the picture that Mark found, taken from 15, 57 billion miles out. Sorry? 37 billion miles uh, by Voyager 1. In 1990, so they actually turned the camera around to be able to take a picture of, of uh, the opposite direction where Voyager was moving. And that's Earth. And then you consider that as an individual, I am one of about, Earth population is about, 7.7 .7 billion at the moment, getting closer to 8 billion people. How significant am I as far as the universe is concerned? Mark found this, and I think it was pretty pertinent to what we were talking about. Totally insignificant. But then they said something else, something else. And then we realized that everything, and this is this is not what they said, this is what Carl Sagan said, but something very similar. They said, anything and everything that we hold dear to our hearts. And every person that is close to us lives on that planet. There's nothing more significant to us than is, than is, what, than what is on that planet. Which brings up the question, when God created this perfect universe, and this perfect universe was polluted by man, by man's bad decision. Why didn't he just snuff it out and start again? It's a very, of course, that's a whole sermon in itself and can be discussed. And, and, but it's a, it's a very important question because it really pertains to the character of God of who God is and how a God of integrity and a God of love and a God who created beings that he wanted to, them to respond to his love. And he snuffed them out and tried it again. He could have gone and tried until he found people that didn't, that always complied with his will. And that would have meant creating little robots. And how can you have love with robots? You can only have love with people who respond to your love. Love is very much of a two-way relationship. 
which comes to our teaching today. So if you think of God's mission to this earth to save humanity, there are probably, and there, and there probably are more, but there's, there's four major miracles that occurred that are extremely difficult for our minds to comprehend. I don't think we can, and maybe some of these, some of these, these miracles probably will never be able to comprehend. The first was, how does God become a man? How does a spiritual being become a physical being? That's, that's the first one. How did God become this, this infant and grow up on this earth? Number two, and, and this is going to be our teaching for today, how does a pure God become evil? All sin and impurity and dirt and filth is laid on him. How does that pure God become? I'm not sure if we can even understand that. Number three, how can God, who has lived from infinity to infinity, how can he be destroyed? How can he be destroyed? How can he be killed? And number four, probably the greatest miracle, how can a God be totally destroyed and then resurrected out of that destruction? I'm not sure we can understand those. But it does demonstrate God's love and how far he was prepared to go to be able to demonstrate his love to each one of us. We know the moon was full. Because it was Passover. Jesus had just completed that final supper in the upper room with his disciples, and he took his disciples through the Kidron Valley up into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he had spent many nights praying to his Father. And he left all but three, and he went deeper into the garden. We instructed them to pray for themselves and pray for him. And then he went even further into that garden and spent solitude by time by himself. This is probably the most defining moment in the history of this world and maybe even the history of the universe. Jesus had to make that final decision whether he was to take on all the sin of humanity. Where every sin that had ever been or will ever be committed was to be laid on him. Every murder, every theft, every disrespect for parents, every pornographic act, every child molestation. And you can go on and on with this list was to be placed on this pure and innocent being. 
The decision that he had to make was a profound decision. And the consequences were great. If he had failed in this mission, the consequences for him as well as for humanity would have been tremendous. For him, if he had failed, he would have been totally separated from his father because he was now sin. He was now sin and could never appear before his father again. And not only that, this earth would become the kingdom of Satan. And every human being would have to live under Satan's control for eternity. And he himself, the living God, would have to be part or become a subject to Satan, always under his authority. We know that this was the most anguishing time that Jesus experienced. We often see these images of this nice sanitized version of Jesus in the garden. The truth is this, that he lay flat on that ground and begged to his father, Father, you know everything and can do everything. And if it's your will, take this cup from me. And in John, it even said he, he, he sweated blood. The anguish of taking this on was so overwhelming for him that he sweated blood. We often think of the cross as the as the. Um, the, the, the death and, and the, the, the pain that Jesus had to, had to experience. But this was probably much greater than what the cross was. This was the worst that Jesus had to, had to deal with. Mark chapter, chapter 14, verse 32, I believe, is, is the verse. And it says, Mark, do you have that, that verse? He took Peter, uh, Peter, James, and John along with him, and he be, began to deeply and became deeply distressed and troubled. That deeply distressed, I want to talk about it. In the Greek, it means amazed or terror or astounded. It, there's an implication here of what happened. First of all, I think the, 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 the terror that he experienced was that he would know he had no longer contact with his father. There was an absolute separation between him and his father, who he had always had close communication with. And now, all of a sudden, he was alone in his humanity, and he had to deal with all the sin that he was dealing with. And number two, when he saw what sin was truly all about, the disgust of sin... He was absolutely amazed and felt to himself, can I take this on? Is it possible for me to take this on? When I was in college, I, um, for a short time period, 
I collected garbage on, on campus. And let me tell you, that is the most disgusting job that you can imagine. And there were two places that we, we really detested, and that was the cafeteria, and the other place, I hate to say this, the girls' dorm. Um, for good reasons. There's nothing worse than rotting food. Man! And when you pile the stuff in there, and then you go to the girls' dorm and add all the sanitation stuff. I'm not going to go into details about that, but when you garbage, you collect all that stuff, and you mix it up there, and it's all piled together in this. And, and you sit amongst, you have to sit in the back of this truck, and you have to shovel the stuff on, and took the barrels and dumped it on there, and, it just, and you sit there, and it's just, the smell is just overwhelming. <clears throat> Absolutely disgusting. And then we took it to the dump, where eventually that was destroyed by fire. It takes destruction to bring about purity. And that's exactly what Christ did. He went out into the neighborhood and found every foul thing that he could find in that neighborhood. From every trash can, from every toilet, from every lawn that was raked up with dog poop and everything. It was all thrown and mixed together and became Jesus. And the only way that could be purified was by fire, by destruction. And so Christ not only took this on, but he had to descend into Hades, into hell. And we can debate all day long whether that's a place or an event, but it does mean this. It means destruction. It means eliminating. And sin had to be eliminated. And sin is eliminated in hell by destruction, by fire. And that's where Jesus went. And then, of course, the greatest miracle. How do you take this and resurrect it back into this perfect human being? And this is what Christ struggled with in that garden. And three times he prayed that prayer to his father. Take this from me if you can. I know you can. I know you're the God of, and all he dealt with was silence. No angel to respond to his request. No father responding to his request. And then he got up and went to his closest friend and found to find out if they could get any support out of them. 
And all he had from them was sleep. No support. Eventually, early in the morning, just before the sun was rising, the betrayer came and Jesus said to the men to come and get him, said, who are you, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. I am the one that you are looking for. Often, we'll hear these sermons about we cannot fall asleep, that we always have to be alert, and that we probably could have done better than his own disciples. Here's the truth. The truth is, Jesus knows our weakness. He knows that we cannot do those things. He knows that we suffer from the sin issue. He knows that we cannot overcome this. But we also know this. Through all things, I can have strength through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus died, took on that sin so that you do not have to struggle with the sin issue. He has struggled for us. All we have to do is not reject that gift. He has given us a gift of salvation He has given us a gift of forgiveness. All your sins have been cleansed and taken away from you because he died for it. It was taken care of. And all he's asking from you, don't reject it. Don't reject it. I love you. Loved you enough. Die on the cross. Ephesians chapter 1 says, Before this earth was created, you were chosen by God. And that's a pretty profound text. And the implication is, or what it implies is that God has given you a gift. The gift is yours. All he's requesting from you is that it's not rejected. And for those who struggle with this issue of whether this is a God of salvation, a God of forgiveness, and God who wants us to have a relationship with him, No better time than now. Just submit your will to him.
Let's pray. Father, how can we thank you enough? The gift that you gave us coming down to this earth, giving up who you were and becoming a humble baby so that I can have eternal life. I pray that you be with us and help us to make a decision and and realize that you are this God of love who wants to have a relationship with us, who wants to be close to us, who wants us more than anything else. We thank you for that gift and we thank you for that persecution that Jesus had to endure. Pray in your loving name. Amen.